Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountains in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Again, Exodus chapter 20 verses 2 to 3. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Andy Howard mentioned, uh, and it's very good to see you and to have you joining us online. Let's just start by praying, and I'm going to pray just from a section of Psalm 119, which if you're ever short on prayer, especially when you come into the Bible, this is a fantastic uh, psalm to use. Lord, your statutes are wonderful, therefore we obey them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and I pant, longing for your commands. Turn to us and have mercy on us, as you always do to those who love your name. Direct our footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over us. Redeem us from the oppression of men, that we may obey your precepts. Make your face shine upon us, your servants, and teach us your decrees. Lord, be with us now, I pray. Help us to listen clearly to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, 
uh, how you frame something really matters. If I could have the picture um, up above me. Have a look at this picture. This picture could be used by two uh, newspapers who were politically opposed. They could both use this photograph depending on how they crop it. If you cropped it one side, you could make this situation look like a soldier showing mercy and charity to an innocent victim. Or you could uh, crop this photo so that it looks like there's a soldier with a gun to the head of someone kneeling on the ground. And you could create quite a different story in your newspaper. So do you get the idea? How you frame something matters, even with a photograph. How you crop that photograph can create two very different stories. And what we're going to be looking at initially is how you frame this verse at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. The verse is, as you've just heard read, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And if you go onto the Freedom From Religion Foundation website, as they speak about the Ten Commandments, they say this. In essence, the first four commandments all scream that the Lord thy God has an uneasy vanity and, like most dictators, must resort to threats rather than intellectual persuasion to promote a point of view. What I'm getting at is it's quite easy, if you take verses out of their context, to crop them in a way that you can really push your perspective. So in this regard, that verse can make the God of the Bible sound like a needy, controlling dictator. And Christians sometimes can do this too. They try and crop it, but they crop this verse slightly unusually so that essentially the God of the Bible is just saying, well, look what I did for you. Now you really owe me. I really want you to do some nice stuff for me now because I did so much for you. And he becomes this sort of guilt-trippy God in the heavens who's constantly just doing a good thing just so that you do stuff back. And we might know human beings like that, but God, hopefully you're going to see in this story in this sermon is not like that. And the way to discover this is to correctly frame this verse, to put it in its right context. And that is often the way to solve many, many debates, is just to cast your eyes a bit wider to see where this is coming in the grand scheme of the storyline. And that's been the whole point of the series that we're in. I think we're in part five of this 12-part series, where we're doing the whole storyline of the Bible in order to show the big context so that when you're reading specific passages, you can always frame it inside of that. It will really help you, hopefully. So, let's try and get a biblical frame of this particular verse, or the Ten Commandments as a whole, but also this verse right at the beginning. Why is the first commandment to only have one God and to have no other idols? Why is, it, why is that the most important, you could say, right at the top? Well, in order to frame this correctly in the biblical sense, we're going to be talking about a wedding. Um, now, just go back a sec and just test the theory of that uh, um, freedom from religious group. If God had been a dictator, what would he have done? So if you cast your mind back or if you know anything of the Bible storyline or if you know the story Prince of Egypt, you will know that the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. At, at the beginning of the book of Exodus. They are in slavery. Now, if God was merely a dictator, just interested in getting human beings to obey him, what would he have done? 
Well, he would have just completely imposed his will upon the nation of Israel in Egypt and told them all, forced them all to do exactly what he wanted. He would have gone overboard on that, but instead something remarkably different occurs. But to understand it, you need to understand a very sort of short story in Exodus chapter 2, kind of before the whole thing kicks off. The big Exodus storyline is about to kick off. But there's one little story in Exodus chapter 2 which you could gloss over and miss if you're not careful. But actually, it provides the frame for the whole story of Exodus, I would suggest. And this is Moses meeting his wife. So Moses sits down on a well. He sees Jethro's daughter. Jethro was a priest at the time. He sees Jethro's daughters being oppressed by shepherds. The shepherds are trying to drive out the daughters. And remember that word, drive out. They are trying to drive out the daughters uh, so that I guess they don't get the water from the well, but uh, instead the shepherds are going to get it. So they are trying to drive out. So Moses, important word, stands up, rises up, and steps in, and it's called saves, saves the daughters from this oppression. And then Moses provides water for the women and all of their uh, animals as well. He provides them with water. And then skipping forward a little bit, but then they all meet together with Jethro, the father, and they all sit down together and have a meal. And at the end of all of this, Moses marries Zipporah, his new wife, Jethro's daughter. So you see the story. This whole story in Exodus chapter 2 is all about Moses getting married to a daughter that he has saved. Yeah? Okay, then we broaden our frame and we look at the whole Exodus story and we discover a very similar plot line. God is on a mountain. We know that because Moses goes up a mountain on the burning bush. God is on a mountain and he sees Israel, who he describes as a, a, in other parts of the Bible as a young daughter. He sees Israel being oppressed by the Egyptians. The Egyptians then, it's exactly the same word, drive out, it's, it's used repeatedly through the Exodus story, the Egyptians and Pharaoh drive out the Israelites, God steps in, but he doesn't just step in, it says in Exodus chapter 6, he stands up, he rises up to save his, this daughter Israel, to bring them out of Egypt. And then what does he do in the wilderness? What does he provide them with? He provides them with water for them, the people, and their animals. And then he invites them up a mountain, and they sit down together to have a meal. The language is amazing, but the way it's described is God is sitting down with his people to have a meal on the mountain. And then, if we know the Moses, marrying Zipporah story, what do we kind of not need to be told is going on? Well, this is the moment when God is marrying his people. The God who has saved Israel is now making vows of commitment at the top of a mountain to his people. He is promising them things, and he is inviting them to make promises to him. And the first of those promises is what? I will have no other gods but you. That is exactly the same as what you would say in a marriage ceremony at the very beginning. Until, until death do us part. I am committing to you, and you have committed to me. God has saved 
his people, by his own hand, he's rescued them, and now he's inviting them to make that same commitment to him. This is a marriage ceremony on the top of the mountain. God is acting it out, and you could say that Moses brings down the two rings, i.e. the two stone tablets, the signs of the covenant that the people will now have. God has married his people on a mountain, and that sets the scene for the whole story of Israel and the Exodus. So the first point is this, with regards to salvation. When we're talking about salvation in the Bible, it is not being set free from something. We are not just being rescued out of something, and then that's it. There is much more to it than this. If we could have the next slide, please. This was the silliest example of um, people just setting things free that I, I actually studied this in my degree. Um, in Germany, 4,000 mink were released into the wild. They were being sadly tested in a lab, etc., etc. But activists kind of only had half the plan. They ran in, invaded, released all the mink into the woodland, and then you get this amazing headline. Mob of marauding minks snacking on woodland creatures. Later down in the story, it turns out they ate one ton of food in three days, these mink. They destroyed the natural habitat, um, and it wasn't a great act of deliverance because they set them free from something, but they were never set free for anything good. So then they just destroy the natural habitat. God didn't just release or save the, uh, the Israelites out of Egypt and then just release them into the wilderness to just go wild. No, no, no. He had a much better plan. He had a plan to bring his people into a land that was flowing with milk and honey. That's the incredible biblical way of describing an incredibly fruitful land or area to live in. He had already prepared this land for him, like preparing a house, the marriage house. He'd already gone ahead. He'd bought the deeds. He'd made it up. He'd done all of the uh, decoration and everything like that. And then he was bringing his bride to their marital home to live in together. And this land was amazing. If you read the law, you will discover that this house is like, I don't know, one of those automated houses that works on voice command. But this house worked on love. If there was love, if God was uh, loving his people, the people were loving God in return, and then they were loving one another, the house would work perfectly. All the lights would be on at the right time, the curtains would be automatically up and down. The way that the Bible describes it is, if there is justice in this land, if people are relating to one another rightly, the crops will grow really well, the animals will be healthy, the people will be strong, they will be protected from any enemy invading forces. The whole land would flourish if love was fertilizing the soil. That was incredible marital home that God wanted to lead his people into. And this is also helpful to bear in mind when you're thinking about the laws that God gave to his people up on that mountain. Now, if you just read them on their own, they look like just very, um, just a list of rules, okay? But you do have to check the terms and conditions. These, nearly all of these rules only kicked in when Israel entered the land. Nearly all of them. Some of them were on the way, 
a bit like you would sort of have in a relationship, but nearly all of the rules only kicked in once Israel had actually entered the land and were able to start living with God in this incredible paradise. So that was the purpose of the law, was to enable Israel, the one he loved, to live in close relationship with him. And it's even shown in this first commandment. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, is very literally translated, you shall have no other gods before my face. Do you see how intimate that is? God is saying, don't bring other gods, other lovers into my bedroom. Don't bring other uh, people, other men into my house. This is my space. This is our space. Don't bring any other idols before my face. Now again, framed correctly within the marital frame, this absolutely makes sense, doesn't it? So this was how they were going to relate to God. Now, what was the place of the law? Well, up until that point, the Israelites had learned to relate to God through Moses. Moses was the one who went up, met with God, came back to the people, and kind of judged them and told them what to do. But Moses was not going to enter the promised land, and Moses was eventually to die. So, the law was given by Moses to the people in order to help them continue to relate to God after Moses had died. And that was the big idea. They now had this incredible book, and when we talk about the law, it actually means the first five books of the Bible, including stories and adventures and poems and some rules. They've got the law in order to help them relate to God as they live in this marital home with God. So Moses gave them the law in order for them to do that. And this is where, if I can say so, God made his big mistake. He gave them, in my opinion, far too much freedom. Many people criticize God as being too much of a dictator. I think he wasn't enough of a dictator, to be honest. Because if I'd been God, and I'd brought this fledgling community out of Egypt, where they're going to have all sorts of bad habits, terrible tendencies, they're not going to know really how to look after themselves, into this home, I would have had angel angel police 24-7, I would have used firebolts from heaven far more often. I would have punished, I would have made it very clear that I had CCTV in every corner of this house, and they could not step out of line until they'd really learned how to obey. But God didn't do that. He gave them so much freedom, the freedom to choose whether to obey his law or not. Many people would criticize God and say, why does God allow so much suffering? And this is a genuine question that's worth reflecting on, but then they sometimes say, why does God uh, allow murder, for example? And in one sense, okay, you're understanding that God could theoretically step in, but the whole Bible storyline is actually God saying, don't murder each other, guys, okay? Now, whose responsibility is it when someone then gets murdered? God has set his expectations for his people very clearly. The law was a good thing to bring them into a good place where they would love one another. 
people pick out small laws and say, how could God possibly say this? Well, flip it around. What if he hadn't? What if he didn't expect people to live closely, showing justice to one another in a loving way? So God had directed them with the law, but he gave them all sorts of freedom as to whether they would choose to follow it or not. And what did they do? They chose to enslave one another and to enslave selves. They decided to go to other nations and become trapped by other nations' gods and worship the the gods of other nations. They chose to enslave one another. So the rich got richer, the poor got poorer, and they let it stay that way. God's law taught them to do exactly the opposite because it knew their tendency, but it also gave them the freedom to ignore that, and they did. They did it again and again and again. So despite the best possible start that Israel could have had, they were given a fully functioning, perfect Google house with no sort of blocks or anything, no plumbing issues, nothing. They had absolute freedom. They were set up. They had enough food. They had enough money, everything. They had the best self-help guide on offer. And with all of that, they totally failed to follow God. See, many people do assume that the Bible is essentially just a rule book for humanity to get better. Even going back to that website from the Freedom from Religion Foundation, it says this at the end of the thing about Ten Commandments. It says, reflect for a moment that almost anyone reading this could write a kinder, wiser, more reasonable set of commandments, and whether that's true or not, I'm pretty sure it's not, but, but then this final comment. So they're saying anyone could have written a better set of Ten Commandments than those that Christians insist we honor. Now, where's the mistake there? They say anyone could have written a better set of tom- commandments that Christians insist we honor. They are implying that the Christian teaching is the Bible uh, has given us a set of rules and we just must follow it and obey it. No, no, no. The very start of the Christian message is we have failed to honor these commands. It's not that we must live up to these commands and that we must honor them, but that we have failed to honor these commands. That is the pumping storyline through the whole Israel frame that Israel were given the chance to obey this, but they chose to not. And they reflect the heart of the rest of humanity. Put human beings in the perfect scenario, total freedom, with all the mod cons that God could possibly give them, and they will enslave one another in various different ways. The big message is, the Old Testament is one long story that proves that better rules don't produce better people. And so the end of the Old Testament is really leaving us with this thing. We need something better than Moses and the law. And that's how Jesus is introduced in John's Gospel. It says this in John chapter 1, verse 17. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, the tone, when you read the New Testament, the tone of even the most faithful Jews was that the law that God gave them to live in love in his land was great. It was good. 
It was insightful. It was a light to guide their path. It answered some of their biggest questions. It was thrilling. It was wonderful. But it was also totally insufficient. Because the law could do nothing to help them with the battle that was going on inside of their own hearts. When they wanted to obey, but they couldn't because everything inside them was trying to go in the opposite direction. When they were told to love their neighbor and they hated their neighbor and they couldn't help but hate their neighbor, the Lord just stands there and watches. It's a little bit like uh, up on the screen, these, the models, little models of the marital couple. Now they resemble the reality to some extent. They give you a kind of idea of what you're meant to expect. But they do nothing. They're not, they're, they're not full of life. And they're not there to help you. So essentially in the law that Moses had passed on, they had a wonderful painting or a picture of God. But it did nothing to help them on the inside to obey, to follow, to live in this loving relationship with God. And so even the most faithful Jews were thinking there's got to be something better. And that, is where we have this amazing comment. Notice in that verse, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. One was given, one came. And this is where the God who had been sort of outlined, painted on that canvas, now came to life and stepped out of the canvas into this world in Jesus. That's the incarnation where God the Son of God becomes a man and walks amongst us. This is God now stepping out of the frame into our reality to be with us. This is far more personal. And look, look at what he does. He's not like Moses, uh, the lawgiver, but he's like the God who was on the mountain the whole time in the story of Exodus. Think about it as Jesus' life. And if you don't know this, no pressure, but I would really encourage you to read one of the Gospels, one of the accounts of Jesus' life. If you've never picked up any of the Bibles, start with the Gospel. It's just an incredible, incredible version of this man Jesus. Just see what you think. But this is a snapshot of what you'll see. At one point, this Jesus chap sits on a well and offers water to a woman who has been cast out from her society, driven out from her society. He sees his people being oppressed by leaders, by Satan and sickness, and he releases them from that slavery. He rises up to heal and deliver people that he describes as the daughters of Israel. Then he describes himself as being the one who's offering the water of eternal life to his people. And he institutes a brand new meal for all of his people to sit down and eat together in his presence. You see, he is emulating all of the ceremonial stuff of this marriage ceremony. And then Jesus is described as the bridegroom who's coming to marry his people, his bride. He is the real deal. He is what the law was pointing towards the whole time. This insufficient thing that was great but not perfect and it wasn't sufficient to help people or to draw people into this ultimate loving relationship now the Son of God who gave that law to Moses to pass on now steps off the mountain to meet with his people personally. And so essentially, living as a Christian 
take the negative. Remember, framing things really matters. How you frame obedience in the Christian life. I hear it sometimes that essentially becoming and growing as a Christian is just about learning to follow the rules better. Learning to fit into the church better. Learning what I'm meant to do and what I'm not meant to do and just doing that better. That would be a complete misrepresentation or cropping only one part of the picture to make it look harsh and unloving. We're doing some marriage prep with some uh, couples at the moment. And imagine if we just sat down and said, all right, what are the rules? And uh, let's work out how you both obey one another's rules, okay? Go ahead. What would that lack? It would lack everything. It would lack the entire point. So think about this verse with the marital frame in mind. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Just as you received Christ Jesus as your Lord, as a wife receives her husband, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Now with that right frame, that is quite a romantic verse. That describes the Christian life. Describes, it's not rules, This is a loving relationship where you're learning to live in harmony with one another. And it's important to also get into this. It's not about superficial rules. Um, Going a a bit further in Colossians, it says this, Since you died with Christ to the elemental uh, elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Now, that is often people's crop of Christianity. Christianity is all about do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. But the Bible itself says that's not what Christianity is about. It's not about your external appearances. It's not about what you're doing with your, sort of in, in that sense. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such, and this is important, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sentient indulgence. Now, I've heard people speak about how, why we should wear our best when we come to church on a Sunday, and the logic is, well, we're here to um, honor God, and of course you should dress up in order to honor God. Now, that has an appearance of wisdom. It makes some sort of logical sense until you get to know the God who we're talking about. And then you realize that he has no interest whatsoever in that kind of stuff. It's external. It's a do not taste, a do not touch, a do not handle. It's not got anything. Uh, wearing a really nice suit is not going to do anything for your fleshly impulses in your heart. If anything, it might make it worse because you'll be walking around going, look at my nice suit. Now, we're also not saying, if you're the kind of person who wears a suit, we're not saying you shouldn't do that, because again, that would be a humility, to try and dress in a way that's not like you. What we're saying is, these are not the rules of the household. So this was the limit of the law. The limit of the law, and it wasn't the law's fault, it was our fault, but the law that Moses handed on couldn't do anything for the heart. And that's why Jesus is so much better. When Moses died, he passed on the law. When Jesus died and rose again, he passed on the Spirit of God. 
It is the Spirit of God that makes all the difference. That is the new covenant that we're, a new agreement, the new marital arrangement now, that we're now relating to God through Christ. Not through Moses and the law, but through Christ, our bridegroom. And his Spirit now lives in us to lead us into grace and truth, to help us to grow in our loving, harmonious relationship with Jesus. This is the biggest difference. It's the Spirit of God. And I sometimes, it, well, it's a bit, I'm going to be cheeky now. It's a bit like when old people look at us young people using calculators and Google and just say, that's unfair, we never had any of those. <laughs> that would be the Jews of the Old Testament looking at us and saying, that's unfair, we never had any of that. The Spirit of God helping you to obey and to walk in love with God. But <laughs> we do. <laughs> And let's take one example of this, because you were promised a giving message. I was washing my hands of the fact that I wasn't going to give a giving message, and then Guy pretends to get sick. No, Guy is actually sick. Um, one of the great examples is this. And just go back. Jesus is teaching. Jesus was very clear. Going back to that first command, have no other gods but me. Um, Jesus makes it very clear, and you can choose whether you believe him or not, but I'm convinced that the number one contender for the human heart is money. The number one contender in the ring standing up to say, I'm going to go up against God, is money. And in many people's case, seems to be winning. Jesus very clearly warned us, you can't worship the two. You, can't be, you have to choose one or the other. Now, into the law, God wrote some very clear instructions about tithing. Very specific amounts of money. Um, and very specific sort of situations in which they should give. Now, it wasn't just 10% because that was a tithe, but there was also giving into ver at various different festivals and other points as well. Um, but this, this idea of the 10% tithe was written into um, Israel's law. Yeah? And that was an external thing to try and teach immature Israel some of the good habits that you should develop as a human being to give towards, uh, give to others. But here's the thing. Once the Spirit came at Pentecost, so we've got Jewish followers who are following the Jewish law, then Jesus, and they're following Jesus as well, learning about what he's getting us ready for. Then Jesus dies. Then he rises to heaven and he sends the Spirit. And at that point, they no longer are obliged to follow the law. The law was for Israel. Now, Jesus has a new people. They are not legally obliged to follow the law and the tithing command. They don't have to. They are free to not do that. The law is not going to hold them accountable for that if they choose to not do it. So what do they all do with their newfound freedom now that they're full of the Holy Spirit? Now, sadly, my tendency was like, Aha, I can spend all my money on sorts of other things. No, no, no. What do they do? In Acts chapter 2, it's remarkable. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, not percent of things in common, all things in common, and they were selling their possessions, not just 10% of their possessions. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's the work of the Holy Spirit compared to the law. The law tells you, all right, 
here's a benchmark, just follow that. Now that they're under the, the, the law of the Spirit, things radically change. And the people of God get more generous, not less, with their newfound freedom that Jesus has given them. That is the work of the Spirit in someone's heart, making them more like the one that they love the most, Jesus. Jesus, who gives us this negative instruction first, he says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Do you see the marital bond in that statement? It's because we're Jesus' number one and he's our number one. That is why we keep our lives free from money. Because you would hate the idea of finding that you didn't really love Jesus as much because money had won your heart. You would hate that. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing inside of you. So that's the negative that our bridegroom Jesus teaches us. And the positive is just very simple. It's better to give than to receive. And doesn't Jesus know what he's talking about in that regard? It's better to give than to receive. He doesn't show up in heaven, sit down with angels and go, crikey, that wasn't worth it. No, he sees every moment someone gives their life to him and experiences freedom and his joy and his liberation because of what he did at the cross and all that he gave up at the cross. He, he is filled with joy every time someone turns and follows him. He's not going, oh, crikey, this was, that was an effort. No, no, no. It was better to give his life than to receive. And so he wants the best for us. He wants us to be freed up in our life. He wants us to be blessed. And he wants us to be a blessing to the world around us. That's what he wants for us. And so this is the big question, I guess, right at the end. If you let money tell you what to do with God, then you will be trapped. But if you let God tell you what to do with money, then you will be free. If you let money tell you what to do with God, then you will be trapped. But if you let God tell you what to do with your money, then you'll be free. And to say it again, if you let money tell you what to do with God, you will never have enough money and you will be trapped. If you let God tell you what to do with your money, you will always have enough and you will be free. So the big thing from this sermon, I guess, is would you listen to God about your regular giving in this church? It is good to put aside money regularly for the work of the church so that we can continue to bless the world around us. Rather than just hearing a command or a rule about how much one should give, would you listen to God instead about what he wants you to do with the money that you've got at the moment? And would you regularly do so? Because it's very easy to slip and slide and start listening to money rather than God. So that's why we repeat this and talk about it, because we all want to live in the freedom that God has for us, not the slavery that money has for us. So that's the big idea. And the whole point is that we're worshipping Jesus. We're married to him. We're loving him. We're responding to his incredible love for us. And we're learning what it means to be in that relationship with him. So let's pray. And if the band could come up. Heavenly Father, thank you for your incredible generosity that despite our ugliness, you 
looked at us with such love. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you decided to come to this earth. You decided to step off that mountain, to come to us face to face, that we might know you and God the Father, and we might experience the Holy Spirit for ourselves. Thank you that your commitment to us knows no ends, goes on for eternity. You are incredible. And we love you. We love you. Now, Lord, please just teach us. Teach us sensitively, gently, by your Holy Spirit what to do with everything. Because we want to live in this loving relationship with you. We don't want to follow other idols and forgive us for where we have. Thank you that you give us freedom. And sorry for the moments when we don't believe that. Just teach us. Help us to guide one another as well. Help us to give one another the space that you give us. But thank you that in all this, Father, you're working through the work of Jesus amongst us right now. And Holy Spirit, simply ask that you would speak. Speak into our lives. Speak to our hearts. Help us to, again, read the Bible with this frame in mind. That we are so loved. And we're growing to become more and more like Jesus, our bridegroom. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.